Okay, so as we're getting started in chapter 14, uh, it's probably going to serve us well to, to just review just a little bit so we can kind of get our bearings and, and remember where we're at in, in the book. Uh, if you remember, we walked all the way uh, we walked all the way up to chapter 11 and we saw the chapter 11 the trumpet judgments taking place and and all those things and that uh, the destruction of the temple the city of Jerusalem is uh, cul- the culminating event that is uh, uh, in salvation history uh, the old covenant which was broken repeatedly has been superseded and fulfilled uh, by Christ and the, and the people of the land received the judgment of God in the form of um, the Roman armies besieging, destroying the last vestiges of the old system. We saw all those things before. Um, we read many quotes from Josephus and, and Roman historians chronicling the destruction of the city, uh, the madness that took place in the city as the Romans surrounded it, besieged it. Uh, we also saw that uh, at the beginning of the initial revolt in Jerusalem, uh, the church uh, within the city, the Jewish Christians in the city of Jerusalem, uh, fled to Pella in obedience to Jesus' command to flee to the hills of Judea when they see the abomination of desolation, which Luke tells us in his version of the Olivet Discourse that that's uh, when the, they see the city encompassed with armies. Uh, but if you remember, uh, chapter 12 began um, a new visionary sequence, uh, which... It, it kind of backed up from the events and began showing us the kind of the big picture, the the overarching narrative of this story that we're we're looking into, the story of salvation history. Uh, remember, we in chapter twelve we backed up and we saw the dragon being cast from heaven and the woman giving birth to this male child who the dragon wanted to kill. Then the child ascended to heaven and the dragon went after the woman's other children and and those other children are the fellow heirs with Christ and 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 we were shown in the last chapter, the last chapter we saw, uh, chapter thirteen, uh, the two beasts that are being used by the dragon to accomplish this uh, accomplish his will to go after those children we saw the first beast which was uh, the military state the the roman beast the roman empire and then we saw the uh uh, we, we know it was the Roman Empire uh, because if you remember, I, I kind of bounced around last time and went to chapter 17 to showing, show you that the seven heads of the beast were uh, seven hills on which, you know, the, the we know that that was the seven hills of Rome and then seven kings. And we talked about all that in, in the last chapter. So go back and listen to that if you have any questions. Um, the second beast that we saw in chapter 13 is the one that's called also in Revelation the false prophet. Uh, and this, this second beast looks like a lamb but it talks like a dragon and we explained those two things in detail last time and we looked at the mark of the beast as well but in chapter 14 this visionary sequence is continuing and what we're going to do here is we're going to catch up to where we were as the story continues to unfold uh, and we are uh, once again shown the persecutions of the believers and the, that culminating in the destruction of Jerusalem so just to uh, just to back up and give you kind of overview of where we're at uh, sometimes it seems like we may be bouncing back and forth in, in the, the timeline uh, but remember Remember, Revelation is not intended to give us a chronology of the events, uh, of the things that happen. We are given, basically, the only chronology is the order of sequence in which John sees the visions. But remember, we backed up in, in chapter 12, and he gave us the overarching narrative, the narrative of the dragon uh, being cast down, uh, going after the, the Messiah, the Messiah being born, and, and the woman hiding in the wilderness, the Messiah ascending to heaven, and the dragon going after the rest of his children, and then we, we, we 
we continued that on with the persecution of those children by the beast. Uh, the we equated that with the the Neronian persecution uh, of the church, and now we're going to see this persecution culminate once again in the uh in the final destruction of uh the old system the old covenant uh vestiges that are still there we're going to see in the destruction of Jerusalem the uh the destruction of the temple uh we're going to see the destruction of uh the city and we're going to see the destruction of biblical Judaism which has never returned uh to the face of uh, on the face of the planet uh so in one sense we're going to be treading over the same ground that we've seen before but we're going to be viewing all this from uh, a different angle as John is shown in this vision uh, so just to let you in a little bit on where we're going the next chapter is going to introduce the bold judgments uh, uh, which I will make the case that these are a recapitulation of the seven trumpets uh, there it's, it's almost identical language being used of the seven bowls and seven trumpets uh, and we'll compare those when we when we get to it um, they're showing things that we've seen before but from a clearer clearer and more intense vantage point um, we'll get to that later though uh, chapter 14 is going to show the results of those who chose who choose to follow the beast uh, rather than Christ and it's going to call the church to be faithful and endure the hardships associated with standing for Christ and in you know standing for his name in the midst of uh, in the midst of a, a persecuting pagan culture. Um, so let's just kind of flesh this all out. The last thing that we saw in chapter 13 was a presentation of the false prophet, the second beast, the one that looks like a lamb, but is an imposter. He speaks like a dragon. Uh, this false lamb, which is, of course, we saw a religious beast leading men astray, actually causing men to worship the first beast. Um, if everything ended in chapter 13, it might look like that false religion will win out and be victorious because it wields the power of the first beast. And if you're wondering about this false religion, what can it be uh, before you start making wild connections with uh, uh, things that you may or may not see t in today's society, which of course there is application, but we, we looked at that and we looked at the different things that the second beast could be, and uh, more than likely it's one of two possibilities. It is it's either the emperor cult, the pagan uh, worship of uh, of Rome, which was part and parcel of society itself, or, and I took this position, that it was uh, it's the high priest aristocracy of the of Jerusalem, of the, the temple and and, and those things in these days the the high priest was basically a puppet of rome he was he was um under the control of uh specifically in paul's day is uh, uh under the, the reign of nero and things he was under the control the high priest was under the control of herod agrippa the second and uh, he basically had the power to pull a high priest or put a high priest in and herod was definitely a friend of caesar's and so you can see rome pulling the strings and these these high priests these uh uh these religious um, aristocracy of Jerusalem who are supposed to be interceding before God for the people are, are more than likely just trying to keep the people in line by keeping everything quiet and allowing Rome to uh, Rome to uh, uh, to uh, to be Rome. And we, we fleshed all that out in chapter 13. I don't want to go back through it again. 
But if it all ended there, it might look like, you know, hey, it's some pretty bad news here. But here in the beginning of chapter 14, we see once again the true lamb. He is not defeated. He's not hindered from standing with his people. He's victorious on Mount Zion in the presence of the throne of God. So uh, at the chapter 13, you see the, the first beast from the sea. You see the second beast from the land. And they're rising up to do to make war on the saints. Uh, and then at the very beginning of chapter 14, you see as it were standing opposed to them you see the lamb and his people standing victoriously on mount zion in revelation 14 1 it says then i looked and behold the lamb was standing on mount zion and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads so here you see the reality as opposed to the counterfeit. The false lamb is the counterfeit. He's pushing his false worship, but he can't conquer the true lamb. Here again, you see the lamb standing on Mount Zion with his true followers of God, uh, the 144,000. Uh, to say that the lamb is, is seen standing on Mount Zion is... Uh, well, it's showing a lot of things, but it's showing the genuineness of this lamb. This is the true lamb. This is the lamb that actually represents God and his people. Mount Zion is a common term in the Old Testament uh, when the Messiah and his remnant are being prophesied about. Um, if you look in Psalm chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, which is a messianic psalm, it says, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion. This is the Father speaking, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Uh, the idea of Zion, uh, it was where God himself was enthroned in, in Israel's temple. There are some places in the Old Testament that uh, Zion is synonymous with uh, the inner courts of the temple and, and those things like that. Uh, um, but the perfection uh, which Jerusalem was always supposed to be is encapsulated in this term Zion, Mount Zion. Um, but this term, this Mount Zion, and we're going to see this as we move through Revelation, is it's now going to characterize the new Jerusalem, uh, the new Jerusalem where God's people uh, dwell with him. Greg Beals uh, has written a really technical commentary on Revelation. It's like a thousand pages. Um, it's a uh, it's real technical though. But it says he says in this in this uh, particular instance he says Mount Zion in the Old Testament appears to occur when emphasis is placed on the deliverance of a remnant and their protection in the mountain fortress. And he's using those things in the in the Old Testament. So you see Mount Zion is a uh, it's a it's a term that would be well known to the people of God uh, for protection deliverance the standing with god the true the true people of god the true place of god's worship you would see those things and so john makes you know he he intentionally uses this term he sees the the lamb and the 144,000 standing on mount zion and we've already seen that the earthly temple, the earthly city, uh, have been placed under the ban and are receiving the judgment of God. We've seen that when the fire was thrown from the altar upon it. <clears throat> this is the the city has become the harlot. Uh, we're going to talk more about that in chapter seventeen. I know that ruffles a lot of feathers, but um, but here we see that the true Mount Zion has not been forsaken. Uh, the true promised remnant of God has not been forsaken, and she has not uh, come under the judgment of God. She is standing. She 
she's still standing with God on Mount Zion, just as it has always been promised from the Old Testament. The promise of God to his people are not forgotten. Uh, They have not been revoked. Uh, The reality is that the promises have been fulfilled in this lamb, in Jesus Christ and his atonement for sin. Uh, The promises to the literal nation of Israel have been fulfilled in a literal national Israelite, and his name is is Jesus the Christ. Uh, The lamb stands victoriously on Mount Zion with his people. Uh, These people, we've seen them before. They are the perfect Israel, uh, which is why we have the the perfect number 12 times 12 times 12 times 1,000. We talked about that when we looked at uh, the 144,000 in in chapter 7. We've already seen them before. Uh, This is the same group that we saw in chapter 7. Now, remember that in in that that chapter, we noticed that the 144,000 and the great multitude that no man can number from every tribe, tongue, and nation are the same group. Remember that. Remember that John heard their number as 144,000. John said, I heard the number of them. It was 144,000. Then it lists 12,000 from this tribe and that tribe and the other tribe. And then when John turned and looked, what he saw was a group that no one could number. Uh, Here we see this group and we're we're told that they have the name of the father and the name of the lamb on their foreheads. Now we've seen, we've also seen this before. This is nothing new. Uh, it's the fact that they were sealed. We saw it in chapter seven. These 144,000 have been sealed, uh, by the spirit of God. They have been sealed by God. This name on their forehead describes their following of God and their belonging to God. Uh, they are his people. It says the father's name is upon them. But here's what I want you to see. We need to make sure that we notice that this name upon their forehead is the exact opposite of what we saw in chapter 13. Uh, in chapter 13, we saw those who take the quote unquote mark of the beast. And we talked about how there's lots of speculation about the mark of the beast and all those kind of things. But if you remember, if you go back and look at the last few verses of chapter 13, this mark that we saw was a number, right? And we talked about the number 666. But if you remember from last time, and if you go back and look at the last few verses of chapter 13, this number is said to be the number of the beast's name. It is the number of his name. And so what you see is in this mark of the beast that's on the hand or on the forehead, it's the name of the beast that is on the the forehead of the hand. And what you see here is an exact opposite of that as the name of the father and the name of the lamb are on the forehead of his children. We see the lamb and his people, his name is on their forehead. And so once again, I'm going to tell you that, you know, if you say the mark of the beast is a literal physical mark or or, you know, a microchip or something like that, whatever, you know, whatever new theory is floating around, uh, then you have to also explain to me what the seal of the lamb is, because it is presented directly opposed to the mark of the beast. The seal of the lamb and the mark of the beast are directly juxtaposed against one another. So they, they correlate with one another. So if the mark of the beast is a stamp, you know, that you wait in line in a bread line and, you know, I get a picture of snow in Soviet Russia or whatever and you know all kind of stuff you know that has come out in movies or whatever and if this is a stamp then you have to tell me what the stamp looks like that the seal of the lamb is because it's the same thing the name of the beast is on the forehead and the hand of the the those who follow the beast uh, and the name of the father and the lamb is on the forehead of those who follow the mark and of course we made the case and I believe it's I believe it's beyond uh, beyond contradiction that 
This mark is not a physical, uh, I can see you walking down the street with a mark on your forehead. This is the, this is the, uh, uh, the identification with the lamb. You are either identified with the lamb or you're identified with the beast. And we notice that every time the mark of the beast is mentioned, it's going to be associated in some way, shape, or form with the worship of the beast. Go through Revelation and look at the word mark of the beast or whatever when you find it. Every time you find it in the same sentence, it's going to say, and the worship of the beast in the same sentence. So the two are in opposition to one another. Uh, What we see here is that these are spiritual markers denoting the people who belong to the lamb and those who belong to the beast. And so... We also know that these 144,000 are those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We saw that in chapter 7 uh, as you know, we made the case that it was the same crowd as the multitude no make a number. Um, you know, and there's some people that dis- would dispute that because you know, they take the 144,000 and the multitude as two different groups. But here in this chapter, in chapter 14, that cannot be the case because <clears throat> in a moment we're going to see, uh, they're going to say, a song, a new song that's going to be coming from this group. And the text says that no one can learn the song except the redeemed. And so, you know, there's people we've talked about this before, but there's people that say the 144,000 are, uh, you know, a physical national Jewish people at the end times and all those kind of things. And you know what? If you, like I said, I'm, I'm never going to debate eschatology because it's fruitless. We can only, we can only go with what the text says and the illusions that it draws from the Old Testament. But if you want to hold that position that these are end time national Israelites, you know, more power to you. The problem is that they're following the Lamb and they've been redeemed from among people. So if they're following the Lamb and they're redeemed, I'm sorry, I don't care who they are. That makes them part of the church, whether they're national. Israelites, whether they're Gentiles, whether they're slave-free, male, female, whatever they are, if they're following the Lamb and they are have the name of the Lamb upon them and they are redeemed from mankind by the Lamb, they are part of the church. Uh, there's no, no way to get around that. So Revelation 14 verse 2 and 3 says this, And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. Now, there are some people that are going to say, well, wait a minute now. The song's really not coming from the 144,000. It's coming from the throne room of God, coming from heaven. But if you'll notice the last phrase in verse 2, the only people that can learn this song are the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the from the earth. So we see that the 144,000 are not just standing there with the lamb they are they are singing this new song and so john sees the true lamb and his people standing on mount zion and at the same time he hears a voice so it says in this text but uh the word the word is phone and it's it's translated a sound in many passages so it's a voice or a sound it's coming from from heaven and this voice uh sounds awesome and terrible uh but it also sounds beautiful at the same time it's it's amazing how he puts these things together he says it sounds like the roar of many waters it sounds like thunder 
uh, an awesome, terrible noise. But it also sounds like harpists that are playing on their harps. And the sound is then equated, of course, with the new song being sung by the 144,000. But make sure you see that. It goes right into the next part saying that they were singing a new song before the throne and no one could learn the song except this 144,000. And actually, we're going to see later in Revelation that this same language of thunder and and many waters sounds like many waters is used to describe the praise that the the redeemed of the earth give God in Revelation nineteen six it says then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying hallelujah for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. And so you see them singing the song of the redeemed. You see them singing the song of victory, this new song unto God. So we can see here that the people of the Lamb are standing in victory with him on Mount Zion, uh, as opposed to the false beasts uh, that are rising up against God's people. Uh, They're singing what's called a new song. In the Old Testament, the new song, uh, it was always an expression of praise to God for his victory over the enemy. Uh, These songs sometime included thanksgiving uh, for his work of creation as well Uh, i'm not going to read all the text because i've noticed these lessons are getting longer and longer but you can see this idea of singing a new song uh, throughout the psalms psalms 33 3 psalm 43 uh, psalm 40 verse 3 psalm 144 verse 9 you can also see them in texts like isaiah 42 10 but we have uh, all those are listed in the outline too if you just want to print it out Uh, we have already seen this new song before in Revelation. And so just keeping it in the context of this book as John uses it, we've seen this new song before. It's sung in Revelation 5 verse 9 and it's sung as praise and honor to the Lamb who is worthy to receive and open the book. If you remember that from Revelation chapter 5, why is he worthy to open the book? It says in Revelation verse five, um, chapter 5 verse 9, it says because he has redeemed people from every tribe, nation, so on and so forth. So it's worth noting here that this song is sung in the presence of the throne and the elders and the living creatures in the presence of the throne room of God. They're seated in the whole. This song is being sung in the holy of holies, in the most holy place. It's being sung right in the presence of God. We're talking about in the very presence of God himself. Uh, in chapter 13, we saw the false lamb, uh, the second beast. It, he only had authority in the presence of the first beast. Remember when it said that he exercised his authority in the presence of the first beast. But here we see that the true lamb and those who follow him sing their songs of praise and glory in the very presence of the almighty omnipotent God. Uh, The false one only works in the presence of his master, uh, while the true people of the lamb exercise their authority in the presence of of God himself and in the presence of his court, in the holy of holies, in the most holy place, uh, the true most holy place. And it also says that no one can learn the song except for those who have been redeemed. Uh, It's only those who've been saved by the lamb's blood that can sing this new song uh i mean even the angels even the angels themselves cannot sing this song because even they don't know what it means to be redeemed i've often talked about this fact uh, in different different settings uh that god has given mankind a, a wonderful gift that so many of us take for granted i don't know if it's ever crossed your mind before but you know before there was adam and eve there were a whole host of angels that fell into sin were cast out of god's presence all that uh, god has never offered them redemption 
of any kind. Uh, the opportunity to be accepted back into fellowship with him is never given to fallen angels ever. They have no recourse to come back into the presence of God. So there's absolutely no reason for mankind to take this this opportunity for salvation for granted or think that somehow God owes us the chance, you know, in order to come back into his presence. No, he doesn't owe us anything at all. Uh, yet he loves us and gave his son, you know, to take on flesh, become a man to redeem men. And so it's pretty astounding when you think, you know, we often, because it's a reality in our experience, we often take that salvation for granted. God would have been right and just and all of creation would hail his goodness if he would have uh, if he would have eternally condemned us from the moment that we first sinned. But he gives us the opportunity through his son because he loved us. He sent his son to die for us. The son did not come as as angel and God as one. He came as man and God as one. Only those born again can sing these praises. Only those that are born again can understand what it's what it means to be redeemed. The worshipers of the beast. Uh, these are those who identify with the world system and the false religion. Uh, they can't sing the praises, these praises to God. God the Father accepts no worship or prayers that are not through the Lamb's sacrifice. And so, even as the uh, even as the, uh, the 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 Roman beast bears down with persecutions against the believers, even as the uh, the high priest aristocracy, the the Judaism of the first century, uh, purported to speak for God and to uh, bring men into the presence of God and the worship of God, they cannot. They could not do it because it's only by the Lamb's sacrifice, only those with the name of the Lamb written upon them. Uh, that's a sobering thought, but it's absolutely true. There were there are many people in the time of John's writing who have said who would have said they follow Jesus or they, they have the true religion of God, uh, but they refuse to bow to the Son and obey his commands, the S-O-N, and obey, and obey his commands. Uh, John would say that these may look like they follow the Lamb, but they're following the beast and they have no part in the in true fellowship with God. Now, here's something you also need to before we go on, you need to draw this distinction. Understand that what we're talking about here is uh, is not necessarily full on hatred, rebellion. I refuse. I will never bow to this Nazarene. Uh, it is that, of course, but it's not just full on rebellion. There were people in the first century who we saw this in the letters of the, to the seven churches. Uh, they were, you know, they were part of the church. They assumed themselves to be part of the church, and they are, you know, this just going along to get along. You know, it's we're, we're it's part of society to worship these gods, to worship this emperor, to do these things. We, you know, we really do love Jesus. We're just, you know, we're just. We're just trying to get along with everybody. We're just trying to survive. We're trying to make it. And the letters to the seven churches show us um, show us without uh, um, without hesitation that this is what it means to to capitulate, to compromise in this way is to follow the beast rather than to follow uh, rather than to follow the lamb. It's to it's to give away uh, the identity in Christ. These early Christians were not, they were not persecuted because they followed Jesus. I mean, of course they were, but in in Rome's eyes, in the eyes of the Jews, in the eyes of the Romans, they weren't persecuted just because they were following this, this God-man named Jesus. They were being persecuted because they refused to follow any of these other gods, any of these other things. Uh, they've refused to take part in society, and, and for the Jews, they were uh, claiming that Jesus was the fulfillment of all that Judaism 
purported to be. And so that was the that was the the big question. Now, um, just so you don't think that I might be taking, you know, all that about the new song just a little bit too far. John is going to give us a detailed description of who these redeemed people are that are singing this new song. He's going to identify them for us in verses four and five. It says it is these who have not defiled themselves with women. Now, remember, we're talking about the hundred and forty four thousand, the only ones who could learn the song. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women for their virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. So let's look at who they are. First, he says they're chaste. They're chaste virgins. Now, there are those, these are those who have not defiled themselves with women, is what it says. Now, there's a little bit of controversy about what this actually means, and it's uh, it's a subject that's debated. So, uh, you know, I'm going to give you two overarching views uh, there are a lot of subsets of these views um, and and what some have said about you know all this before I tell you what I think what my opinion is uh, some interpreters you can either see them as literal virgins or figurative those are the big two views and I'm going to explain that just a little bit uh, some interpreters see them as literal uh, this could mean it could mean a few different things depending on the perspective by which you you're coming to the text of Revelation uh, some people see them as simply Christian men who are celibate and they're actually virgins christian men who are virgins now it says it uses the masculine says they've not defiled themselves with women so they take them to mean christian men who are celibate Uh, and there are some that take the description to mean that these are men and women who are virgins they're they're it's using an old testament reference to defiling yourself with women uh there are some that take this description um uh to mean both both sexes so the 144,000 includes all um yeah it's kind of hard for me if this is literal since all the pronouns are masculine but just to let you know there there's some who say that this is a a picture of all Christians the Christians who are celibate in the end times um incidentally this is one of the verses that was used to promote celibacy you know in, in uh, as being higher or more spiritual you know in the middle ages the priests and the nuns and all that kind of thing called to give up marriage this is one of the verses that was used um and so of course you got the other other the people who say that it's just the Jews, it's a uh, 144,000 of elect Jewish people who are actually literally celibate, that are virgins. Um, and they're, you know, that that comes with, you know, that that comes with a whole different interpretation of pretty much everything we've seen so far. So I'm not sure I can bite off on the fact that these are just national Jews who are uh, following the lamb and, and, and celibate because I mean, you're, you're told that they follow the lamb wherever he goes. I mean, that, that makes you part of the church, whether you're a national Israelite or not. Uh, <clears throat> doesn't really matter if you're Jew or Gentile, you're part of the church. And plus here's the thing that, uh, that really pushes me away from that in that interpretation the it says they're called the first fruits for God and the Lamb, the first fruits for God. Now, if these are a group of people at the end time, at the, the last days before the end of the world, that kind of thing, there is no logical way that you can call them the first fruits to God. Uh, I mean, if the church has been going on for 2,000 years, if the people of God, even if the Jewish nation has been going on for 7,000 years or however however long it has been, uh, and people have been getting saved since Christ and coming to the Father through Christ in the the last 2,000 years, 
I don't care how you identify them or what nationality you associate with them. There is no logical way that they can be the first fruits of God's harvest. We're going to see in this chapter the image of harvest being a, a, one of the major themes. Uh, if this is describing the last days of history right here in this section, we're going to see the last days of history, but not we're not there yet. If this part, this chapter 14, is describing the last days of history, then these are not the first fruits. These are the last fruits. <laughs> but, you know, we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Uh, there are also some who hold uh, to the literal view of calling them chaste virgins. Uh, that just simply means they are Christians who have abstained from the sexual rites of the pagan feasts and the temples. Of the three literal views that I've talked about so far, I can kind of see this one a little clearer than the others. But it still remains it still remains kind of unconvinc- unconvincing. Uh, because the following descriptions of the 144,000 all deal with their spiritual identity. They follow the land. They've been redeemed as the first fruits of God. So simply keeping yourself from idolatrous sex really, really doesn't, doesn't merit that you belong to God or that you are a fruit of the labor of Christ. You know, uh, that's just kind of what it's, what's supposed to be. So none of these literal views really jumps out as logical in terms of what the text actually says to me. Um, the other way that it's viewed, of course, is from spiritual or figurative standpoint. If we take this to mean that they are spiritually pure and chaste, we start seeing the parallels through the Old and New Testaments when when they speak of believers, those who have been redeemed from uh, by the Lamb. The Old Testament repeatedly calls for soldiers in God's army to preserve their ceremonial purity before battle. You can read texts like Deuteronomy 23, verses 9 and 10, uh, 1 Samuel 21, 5, 2 Samuel 11, uh, verses 8 through 11. All those references are in, in the outline uh, on the website if you need them, jasonvalada.com. And what we what we see here is that the Lamb and his people, it almost looks like they're lined up for battle on Mount Zion. You've got the beasts rising up from where they are, making war against the saints, and then you've got the Lamb and his people rising up in the presence of God on Mount Zion uh, to, to make war against them. But more importantly, when you look at the pictures from the Old Testament, we see that the sin of idolatry is all often many times I was going to say all times, but there there may be an exception in there somewhere is most often spoke of in terms of being sexually immoral. Uh, Israel is often called the harlot who went whoring after other gods in the Old Testament. Uh, in fact, that's really the whole point of the book of Hosea. God tells Hosea to go take a prostitute for a bride because Israel is prostituted herself by going after false gods. And uh, the, the application is, is kind of clear. The remnant has not soiled themselves with the immoral adultery of worshiping the beast or his image. Uh, in verse 8 of this chapter, we're going to see that this uh, Babylon is what he calls it, has caused the nations to drink, uh, drink of the passion of her immorality. And so the text of uh, it's using idolatry in terms of sexual immorality. And this is exactly what the remnant, these 144,000, have not done. They have not forsaken Christ to follow gods who are not really gods. So they can be called chaste. They are the chaste bride of God. They are, they are pure and blameless. They can be called those who have not defiled themselves. And the idea that the believers are the bride of Christ, betrothed to God, it's really nothing new. The Ideal Israel was always called to be a chaste bride. In Jeremiah 2, verses 2 and 3, it says, Go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, 
I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals, your following after me in the wilderness through a a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first, uh, the first fruits of his harvest. This is in Jeremiah two. All who ate of it became guilty. Evil came upon them, declares the Lord. And so you see this connection of the bride, the betrothed, those following after God through the wilderness being called the first fruits of his harvest, the perfect Israel. He says, I remember those things when you were that. And of course, then Jeremiah goes on to denounce Israel and to prophesy the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. And then in the New Testament, you see Second Corinthians 11, verses 2, even Paul says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. That's what Paul said about the church in Corinth, which incidentally was a pretty messed up church. So we see that they are a chaste bride. They are followers of the Lamb. They are the first fruits unto God, uh, which shows that it's a it's a first century fulfillment that they are the first fruits unto God. We've already mentioned this, but the idea of them being first fruit it kind of militates against some kind of end time group of people. Uh, some people take this group to be representative of the first century church standing against the beast, and others take it to be the first century Jewish Christians, particularly Jewish Christians who were rescued from the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, but either way, it has to point to a fulfillment near John's day if they're going to be called first fruits. First fruits in the Old Testament were the offerings to God that foreshadowed the coming harvest. Uh, the first fruits were the offering that assured that the rest of the harvest was to come. Uh, And incidentally, Paul also identifies his first century Roman readers as having the first fruits of the Spirit. He says that in Romans 8.23. He says, and not only this, but we also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption of, uh, of sons, the redemption of our body. If Paul identified the first fruits with the first century church, I mean, how can we really argue with him? And, and in verse five, we also see first five of Revelation. We also see that. These who follow the lamb are called blameless and no lie is found in their mouth. The false lamb, the second beast of chapter 13, is full of deceit, causes men to worship the image of the beast. But here, the true followers of the lamb have no deceit in their mouths. They worship and follow the lamb openly and triumphantly. They are they are blameless because they've been judicially forgiven of all their sins, spotless before God. Uh, Christ's remnant are conform to his image. The text here in verse 5 alludes to two Old Testament passages. It says, it alludes to Isaiah 53, 9, where it says his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Talking about the Messiah in Isaiah 53. And then in Zephaniah 3, verse 13, it says the remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths, for they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble prophesying of the remnant of Israel, which we see being fulfilled even here, those that stand on Mount Zion with the Lamb. So there in the first five verses of Revelation 14, we have the true Lamb, his people, raising up for battle against the false Lamb and his efforts to cause men to worship the beast and the dragon. And now the scene shifts 
and we're going to see the culmination of this. Once again, as angels begin flying, they begin pronouncing woe and judgment upon the land. We're going to see the culmination of all of this in the destruction of Jerusalem once again. Now, there are a few different views about these angels we're going to see in these next section of, of Revelation 14. There is seven of them. And so we saw the seven angels, seven trumpets before, but there is a question about the fourth one. The fourth, uh, the fourth being we see here, I call them beings. Uh, we see three angels that are going to come give their proclamation. Then the fourth is going to be described as one like a son of man. And then there are going to be three more after him. Uh, we'll talk about that when we get there. Uh, but uh, understand that there's a lot of discussion about whether this son of man is, is Christ, uh, representing Christ, or is it just another angel making seven angels? Uh, and we'll get to that, we'll get to that when, we, uh, when we get to it. But in Revelation 14, verses 6 through 7, let me just read it and we'll start. Uh, Then I saw another angel uh, flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So this angel is flying over and he has an eternal gospel to proclaim claim. Uh, What is this eternal gospel? Uh, To me, I really don't think there's any question, but there is some discussion. There is some dispute. Uh, Some people say that since there is no definite article, it says an eternal gospel instead of the eternal eternal gospel. And due to the fact that the angel really doesn't proclaim anything except judgment. Uh, some people say that this isn't the gospel of Christ. But we've already seen in previous chapters and throughout the New Testament that the gospel itself includes judgment. It always includes judgment. What is it that we're being saved from is part of the gospel. Uh, the gospel is the justice of God being poured out in full. It's either taken upon the shoulders of the Son of God as he atones for sin on the cross, or it's taken upon the sinner himself or herself for all eternity. So the idea of a feel-good gospel that's just about telling people, you know, one side of God's character, uh, you know, he's just love and fuzzy bunny, it's, it's not just, it's not biblical. Yes, God loves you, and yes, God has a plan for you, but God is also righteous. He's also just. He's also holy. And there's a reckoning for sin, which is the whole reason he sent his son to die on the cross in the first place so this angel goes out to preach the the gospel the word is uh which means to preach it's a it's a um it's a word that's used throughout the new testament for to to evangelize to uh to uh to preach the good news to it's it's you know uh, uh translated many different ways but this angel goes forth preaching this eternal gospel preaching an eternal gospel and it's so and it says uh, look at verse six it says uh it tells us who this gospel is preached to now the gospel goes to the people who live in the land we've seen this over and over again the word gay translated earth or land ground uh in the context which is israel and in the old testament the greek version of the old testament the septuagint when you say the land in that uh in that uh the 
Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, uh, it's al- almost always referring to the promised land. And so he's preaching this eternal gospel to the land of Israel, and also it goes to all people of every nation. Now, if you're reading from an English Standard Version, which is the text that I just read from, from you will notice that it doesn't translate the word and. It just says, with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language. And the word and in between those who dwell in the earth, uh, dwell on the land, and dwell, and those of every tribe is 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 not there in the English Standard Version and probably in some other versions as well. Uh, but in the Greek text, and, and many English translations like the King James Version, the New American Standard uh, Bible, it is there, and it should be there because it says, and obviously the translation committee of the uh, English Standard Version are equating those who dwell on the earth, and that's how they're translating gay there, and the people from every nation. If it's if it's your presupposition that those who dwell on the earth means all people all over the world, then naturally you would have to equate those with people from every tribe, tongue, and language because you can't make a distinction between all the people who live all over the world and people from every tribe, tongue, and nation because they're both the same group. And to be fair, I know I'm kind of capitulating on a lot of different things, uh, to be fair, the word chi, which is the word a, uh, I mean the word and in Greek, it can also mean even. So it could be translated uh, the all the people of the earth, even from every tri- tongue and nation. But more than more than likely, because land has been used uh, the way it has been used so far in the Book of Revelation, I think it's uh, I think it's extremely safe to say that these are two different groups. The gospel it goes to to the land of Israel as well as to all the nations uh, of the earth. And so the vision that John sees is an angel preaching the gospel first to the people of the land, then to every nation under the earth. And that's exactly what the New Testament says repeatedly. The gospel goes to the Jew first, then to the Greek. The Jew first, then the Gen- then to the Gentile. In every city that Paul traveled, every city we see that him go to in Acts, uh, all the ministry that he does in Acts, the first thing he does when he goes to the city is what he goes to the synagogue first and then when people are converted other people reject he goes to the gentiles and since the gospel is preached to all nations uh, here some people have said that this proves that we're talking about an end time uh, situation here because the gospel hasn't been preached over the whole whole world yet uh, but this is this is also not really in line with what the apostles themselves said romans 1 8 paul says first i thank my god through jesus christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Uh, In Colossians 1, verses 5 and 6, Paul says, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. And then in Colossians one twenty three, he says, If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And so even the uh, even the New Testament authors, uh, the Apostle Paul would say that even in his day, the gospel has gone forth to the world. And what he means by that is it's gone forth to all people. It's gone to both Jew and Gentile. Now, we can have a long discussion. I almost included this, and I probably shouldn't even get into it. But a lot of a lot of people will look around and, and they have kind of a. 
uh, a short-sighted view of history. Uh, they'll say, you know, you look over in some of the Asian countries and, and things like that and say, well, those people over there, lots of people haven't heard the gospel. So evidently it hasn't gone to the whole world. But if you look back through history, and I'm not saying it, it doesn't mean that every single person who ever lives on the planet has got to hear the gospel before Christ can return or something like that. But what I'm saying is the gospel has gone through the whole world, even in those Asian countries. Many of those Asian countries, many of the Middle Eastern countries, they're not um, they are post Christian. They were evangelized. Just for an example, and this is you know this just uh, just talking out loud. Uh, Nestorian Christians went all through Asia, uh, you know, way back, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and you know the gospel was proclaimed and uh, the gospel was brought to those to those people groups. And of course, now the whole country are deficient in the gospel. I'm not saying we don't need to evangelize. Not saying we don't need missionaries. Not saying we don't go fill the Great Commission and all those kind of things. But I'm saying if if, if you're if you're thinking that Jesus can't return until some aboriginal tribe somewhere in the farthest reaches of the world hears the gospel, uh, you are mistaken. He could come at any moment, at any day and time, because the gospel has gone out to the whole world. And so this is what the angels proclaim him. Um, verse seven, verse seven gives us the content. We could talk a lot more about that. There were, you know, Middle Eastern countries. North Africa was a hub of Christianity until Muslim invasion in the 600s moved in. So we could talk more about all those things. Anyway, uh, verse seven gives us the content of the angel's proclamation. We're told that this is the only proclamation. We're not told that this is the only proclamation that he gives. This is the only proclamation of the gospel, but it's given to us kind of in broad outlines as the angel angel goes forth warning the people and and he's warning them to turn to God. Uh, Now, remember what's going on. The second beast is purportedly bringing people to God. He's saying, I am, I am the mediator between God and man. I am, you know, he's, speaks like a lamb, you know, speaks like a lamb. I mean, he looks like a lamb and and speaks like a dragon. And so this angel is warning people, turn to God. The angel tells all men to fear God and to give him glory. They're commanded to worship the creator. This lines up perfectly with the proclamation of the gospel of the New Testament. Paul told those listening on Mars Hill that God commands all men everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he will judge the world by Jesus Uh, at Pentecost. The people listening to Peter ask, what should we do? Peter's first word to them. Repent. Sinners are, are called to lay down their rebellion, turn to God in in uh, in uh, uh, adoration and praise. Uh, uh, this is the fundamental call of the gospel. The only way that can happen is by the power of the Holy Spirit applying the gospel to of Christ to to the heart. So this angel warns men to turn to God because the hour of judgment has come. This is this is the gospel. It is it's truly good news for those who are following the Lamb and have been redeemed from their sins. Uh, first of all, judgment holds no fear for us because we've our sins have been judged at the cross. Uh, but in fact, when judgment has come, when it is coming upon those who persecute and oppress God's people, it's a glorious and wonderful day for the redeemed when when justice comes for those who are oppressing and persecuting God's people. Uh, and the proclamation is given uh, for the exhortation and the encouragement of the saints. We're going to get to that in verse 12. 
First, in verse 8, we see another angel, and another angel, second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Um, the statement of the second angel comes, it comes from a couple of Old Testament texts. The first is Isaiah 21, 9. It says, Now behold, here comes a troop of riders, horsemen in pairs, and one said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the images of her gods are shattered on the ground. The context of the Isaiah passage is it's clearly the destruction of Babylon, the destruction of the idolatrous system of Babylon, which oppressed God's people and brought them into captivity. Uh, so that's a no-brainer. But Babylon the Great, that phrase, it's only used one other time in the Old Testament, and that's in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30. Uh, Babylon the Great comes in there where King Nebuchadnezzar uh, is looking out over the city, and he acclaims the city's greatness as a monument to his own power. He, Babylon the Great uh, doesn't occur anywhere else in the Old Testament. Uh, the text says, the king reflected and said, is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? And of course, you know how that turned out for Nebuchadnezzar. So Babylon has brought idolatry to the nations. He's made Babylon has made all nations drink the wine of her immorality. Uh, we've already seen this adultery language, this sexual immorality language being associated with idolatry. And this drinking of the wine of her immorality, it comes from Jeremiah 51, 7 through 10. Babylon has been a golden cup in the hand of the Lord, intoxicating all the earth. The nations have drunk of her wine. Therefore, the nations are going mad. Uh, suddenly Babylon has fallen and been broken. Wail over her. Bring balm for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. We applied healing to Babylon, but she was not healed. Forsake her and let us go to his own country, for her judgment has reached to heaven and towers up to the very skies. The Lord has brought about our vindication. Come and let us recount in Zion the work of the Lord our God. Now, I read that whole text to you. There's a lot of verses there. Um, I read that whole text so you can see the, the imagery that's being evoked here. Is Babylon's been fallen. Babylon is being judged because the nations have drunk of her wine, uh, the wine of her immorality. We are called to forsake her, to come out. The Jews were called to forsake her and come out to their own country. Um, her judgment has been reached, and it says we are to come, the Jews are to come, and let, the, let us recount in Zion what we've already seen in the first part of Revelation, the work of our Lord. Now, there are usually two interpretations of the identity of Babylon. Now, here is here is where we're going to get into some uh, some definitely get into some to some stuff. So, there's usually two interpretations of uh, the uh, the identity. One is that Babylon is representative of Rome, and it's very popular. And, and to be fair. You know, I can you can clearly see some parallels, see why Rome would be interpreted. The Roman Empire would be interpreted as Babylon. Uh, for one, they infected the world with their idolatry. There's no doubt about that. The emperor cult, the Caesar worship, the pagan gods, all those kind of things. Uh, they oppressed all nations that they conquered, including Israel. Uh, they were Rome. The Roman Empire was irrefutably the world's greatest power uh, of the first century. There had never been an empire like it ever before before them and so you can see 
where Rome and and by the you know by, by Nero's day the the Christians are, are beginning to f- face more and severe persecutions and all those kind of things. So it's not really a stretch, and I'm not going to be arguing the point with anyone who is adamant about the fact that Babylon is Rome. Uh, the other identification which I hold to, and I'm going to try to uh, give you the reasons why. Like I said from the very beginning of dealing with Revelation, I'm just going to give you the evidence and to tell you what. I think and why I think it, and you just make up your own mind about uh, what it means. The other identification of Babylon is Jerusalem, and uh, Jerusalem is much more likely, and I'm going to tell you why. The identification of Babylon uh, with uh, with the city of Jerusalem is, uh, of course, it's expressed clearest in chapter 17. And we're going to get there uh, when we get there. And so we'll talk about it more there. It's the harlot, the harlot that rides the beast. Uh, we're going to see that in chapter 17. And I'm going to make the case in chapter 17 that this this uh, this uh, harlot, this harlot that uh, on the on her forehead is written Babylon the Great is why uh, she's equated with the harlot in in uh, Revelation 17. Uh, this harlot rides the seven-headed beast with ten horns, which in chapter 17 is going to be interpreted for us as the city that sits on seven hills and seven kings. We've already looked at those verses before. So the Babylon the Great in chapter 17 is equated with the woman who rides on the beast of Rome. And there's a much fuller description uh, given there. She's called Babylon the Great. She's the mother of harlots and the abominations of the land. A much fuller description of this harlot's given in chapter 17. And each picture points to Jerusalem, the cultic worship in Jerusalem, the high priest garments she's going to be wearing, all those kind of things. The harlot is riding the beast, and, and the beast is clearly identified in 17. But also... We see that uh, that great city, we've, we've talked about that before, Babylon the Great, and we're, we've seen Jerusalem, that great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and, uh, and Egypt in chapter 11. So those two things are going to come together. As we get to chapter 17, uh, if you see the if you see Babylon the Great here as the Roman Empire, uh, when we get to chapter 17, uh, we're going to face an interpretive problem because what we see here is Babylon the Great, Babylon, Babylon, the harlot. You know, if she's Rome, she's riding on the beast of Rome. And so you're, you're going to run into an interpretive problem where the symbols are are kind of mixed up there. Now, I, I don't mean to say it means this because later on we're going to see that when we get to chapter 17, the symbols are going to be interpreted for us. And so if you remember, we've already talked about chapter 17, about the seven heads being the seven hills of Rome. And these are seven kings, five have fallen, one is and one is yet to come. We've We've seen those things before that is specifically intended for us to interpret the beast as Rome, the first beast with the seven heads as the Roman Empire. And therefore, the woman, the harlot, Babylon, the great uh, is identified as Jerusalem, is identified as um the quote unquote supposed to be God's people. There's only one nation throughout the Old Testament that was called a harlot. And that was the nation of Israel. She played the whore. She played the harlot. She went whoring after other gods. She was supposed to be married to God. She was supposed to be the bride of God. And she, she played the harlot. So we're going we're gonna to put off a fuller description of the harlot. Babylon the Great, the one who has fallen, until we get to 17. But understand that that 
you know, I, I'm not going to fight and argue with you if you see this as Rome because uh, Rome fits in a lot of different ways. But if you put the whole of the Revelation together, I think that it's more likely that it's Jerusalem that is now identified with Babylon because they have refused the Lamb. They have rejected the Messiah. They have rejected the uh, fulfillment of the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They've rejected the, the eternal covenant of God, and therefore they have set themselves up as enemies of God as beasts against God's people. And so the third angel's proclamation we're going to see in verses 9 uh, verses 9 through 11. Let me get to it here. Oh man. My deal just went blank. This professional professionalism right here. It says, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his right hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Did you notice when we talked about the mark, we also talked about the worship. It says, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark every time you see the mark you're going to see the worship of the beast it's synonymous uh, this speaks of this these verses speak of of those who identify with the beast uh, rather than with Christ in order to you know we saw it in the letters to the seven churches in order to preserve their economic interest or their cultural prosperity or to be free from persecution or whatever they go ahead and they worship the beast they go ahead and they give a pinch of incense to the emperor they go ahead and follow uh, these things if anyone worships the beast he is um He's going to be tormented. This isn't this isn't a picture of just devil worshipers, you know, running around black fingernails, lighting fires and sacrificing baby goats. Uh, this is all those who sacrifice truth for worldly expediency. You know, it's just going to go better if we do it this way. You know, things are just going to work out better for us if we do this way. We've got to survive, don't we? Uh, this is this is what we're seeing here. We saw it throughout the Letters of Seven Churches. Uh, just as Babylon has caused the people, the, the nations, to drink from the cup of her passions, it says God will cause them to drink from the, the wine of of his wrath. And the application of this wrath is... It's terrifying. I mean, the the worshipers of the beast are going to be tormented. They're not only going to be tormented, but they're going to be tormented eternally. Uh, it says they'll be tormented with with uh, fire and brimstone. This is, of course, an allusion to Genesis nineteen twenty four and twenty five. It says then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire uh, from the Lord, or sulfur and fire, depending on what kind of translation you got from the the Lord out of heaven, and He overthrew those cities and the valley and the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. It says they will be tormented. They will be tormented uh, with uh, fire and sulfur, brimstone. And look, it says they'll be tormented in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. A lot of people, a lot of people have this idea that, you know, God's if if God is good and he's all love and all those things, God would never t- send a person to hell. God would never uh, bring eternal punishment on a person. But understand that God is not just the fuzzy bunny 
butler in the sky ready to give you whatever you ask for. He's also holy and he's also righteous. He's he's very scary. I uh, was uh, reminded of a quote that I've heard uh, before. I don't remember who said it, but uh, today I was reminded of it that says God is absolutely terrifying outside of Christ. Outside of Christ, God is absolutely terrifying and it says this torment that they they will be engaged in it will never cease in verse uh verse 11 second part of verse 11 or it says verse 11 i hadn't read 11 yet it says and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name you see it again there every time you see the mark you're going to see the worship uh, day or night, these worshipers of the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. And so they are tormented. The torment will be eternal. It says day and night forever and ever. There's a group now um, that is, well, I guess it's been a, a while, been around a while, but uh, they're coming to prominence now that say uh, heaven is nothing more. I mean, hell is nothing more than annihilation. Hell is nothing more than. Uh, ceasing to exist and so if you go to eternal life you get to live forever if you are cast into hell you will just terminate and cease to exist that is not the that's not the picture of hell that the new testament gives us you can see matthew 25 everlasting punishment everlasting torment that the when when jesus separates the sheep and the goats and here you can see the torment uh, that they will go through the torment the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever and they will have no rest day or night there is uh I don't know if I don't know if I would say that there is, but I can see where some people might think that there is a, a rest in just ceasing to exist, just dying and there be nothingness, you know, especially if life is hard and lots of suffering, lots of things you get, you know, sometimes it's just ceasing to exist. seems like, you know what, it's better just to not be. I'm just going to I'm just going to, you know, look forward to this. I'm not going to follow Christ, not going to live for him, not going to trust in him or anything like that. And when I die. You know, I'm just going to just going to not exist. I'm just going to everything's going to be nothingness. Uh, the reality is so far from that. Uh, there will be no rest. There will be no rest day or night forever and ever for those who he's talking about, for those who do not identify themselves with Christ, with Christ to come into union with Christ. What he's talking about is the gospel. What he's talking about is repenting of your sin and trusting in the one who died for your sin to pay for those sins. And so all these things are grim pictures. But he says he gives this. He gives this. Why? Why is it? Is it just a warning? Yes, it is a warning. But is it just a, hey, guys, hellfire, brimstone, hell's hot? No, he's given this for the encouragement of the saints and a call for them who are trusting in Christ, who are suffering under the world system, who are suffering under the religion that claims that it is from God. Those who are suffering, he's calling for them to endure. In verse 12, it says, here is a call. This call, this is given as a call for the endurance of the saints. Well, who are the saints? The saints are those who keep the commandments of God and their faith 
in Jesus. I'll never understand the people who say that the church doesn't appear in Revelation after chapter 4. I mean, who are these people who keep the commandments of God and have faith in Jesus? I don't care if they're national Jews. I don't care if they're Gentiles or who they are. I don't care if they're yellow with pink polka dots on them. If they have faith, true faith in Jesus, they are part of the body of Christ. They are part of the church. And it says, here's a call for the endurance. This this is this is a call to endure the persecution that's going on. It's a call to endure in our faith and not to not to uh, bow to the 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 whims of the beast, whether it be the religious beast or the uh, <clears throat> the world system beast that uh, tries to get us to bend uh, toward its will, no, no matter what pressure it puts upon us, whether it's <clears throat> economic pressure, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> or cultural pressure or whatever. We saw all those through the letters of the churches. This is a call to endure. And this call says in verse 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. This is what you're called to write, John. This is what we need to know. It says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. So understand, even if you're called to endure to the death, we saw that in one of the seven churches where it says you you're going to uh, uh, going to put some of you in prison. You're going to die. Uh, even if you're called to endure unto death, it says, blessed are you. Blessed are you uh, that die in the Lord. Blessed are you that die uh, with the gospel as your only hope. It says, because you will rest. He says that they may find rest. Remember, this is in opposition to those who take the mark and those who worship the beast and uh, they will not rest day or night forever and ever and ever. It says, but blessed are those who die in the Lord for they will rest and they're going to rest because their deeds follow them. It may seem like a lost cause. It may seem hopeless. You know, you think about the Christian martyrs uh, in the first century and all the way to the all the way through the third century. Um, the Christian martyrs who who gladly went to their death, excited, happy, rejoicing that they went to their death because they knew that their deeds were would follow them. This doesn't mean that we're saved by works or anything like that. It means that our salvation, if it's genuine, will result in these works for God. God's people will never, if they have a new heart and they have the Spirit of God living in them, they will endure to the end. God is a good shepherd and he will chastise those that are that are his. Their deeds will follow them. The true church is called to endure all these temporary trials and suffering knowing that we will receive the reward the 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 present beast worshipers you know they may seem like they're benefiting now they're reaping the the harvest of of uh prosperity and 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 peace and and uh you know comfort in this life and nobody's after them and you know they're bowing to the will of the culture and all these things but they will reap the harvest of God's wrath when they stand before him and the reward of the faithful is that they are blessed even in their deaths and they will not be tormented they will get to rest because of their stand for Christ and their deeds <clears throat> that they've done in this life you know keeping Christ commandments and holding fast to their faith in Christ is what the he said describes them they'll follow them into eternity and they'll be rewarded in the presence of the lamb now on the flip side as we look at verses uh 
14 through 20, which is going to be the last section of this chapter, we're going to see the harvest of God's wrath, the harvest of God's wrath. Uh, And if you uh, are thinking about what we've seen so far, you'll see that the harvest imagery has been used all the way up until this point. At the very beginning, we've seen the first fruits of the harvest. And now then we saw the, the they're going to be made to drink the wine, the grape harvest of God's wrath. And now we're going to see the harvest imagery uh, played out in, in the vision that John sees in between uh, verse 14 and 20. And once again, and, and I told you this way at the beginning, I don't know if you remember it or not, as we get deeper and deeper into Revelation and into these symbols, there's going to be more and more controversy as to what these symbols mean. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to do my best to uh, represent maybe some of the other views that are that are seen, and I'm going to tell you why I think it is this, and once again, you take you take what I say, the reasons for the conclusions I draw, and you just you just make your own mind up, and more power to you. Um, this uh, <clears throat> This reaping has been seen in lots of different ways. So it says in verse 14, let me just read verses 14 first. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown in his head, a sharp sickle in his hand. Now here's the the fourth appearance of a being. You know, we have seven uh, seven beings. You know, I'm going to make the case that this is a representation of Christ. This is a representation of, you know, we've already seen the son of man represented in Revelation. And there's three angels that appear before him, bringing judgment and woe and all those kind of things. There's three angels that bring that come after him. So he is kind of the centerpiece of this vision uh, of these seven messengers. Uh, I don't really think there's any. There's a lot of people that say he's just an angel. There's some controversy about, you know, it's got to be seven angels because it's been seven angels and seven trumpets and all those things. And it, to be fair, it is seven uh, because it's it's six angels and the son of man here. And so it, it's possible. It's it's possible that it could be, but I think that the Son of Man imagery that we've seen in Revelation that points back to Daniel chapter 7 uh, necessitates that we see this as represent, representative of Christ. Remember, the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7 ascended to the Ancient of Days and was given a kingdom and a throne and dominion. And when, when John saw Jesus in the very first chapter of Revelation walking among the lampstands, he said, this is one like a Son of Man. And he described to us using imagery from Daniel and all all those kind of things. And here you see him once again riding on a cloud, the Son of Man on a cloud. Uh, it points your mind back to Daniel chapter 7 and the one that ascended to the Ancient of Days. He's not only has a cloud, riding a cloud, but he's got a golden crown upon his head. Uh, it is a representation of Christ. And he has this sharp sickle in his hand. We don't know what it's for yet, but we're going to see here momentarily. It says in verse 15, and another angel came out of the temple. This is the heavenly temple. This is coming from the throne room of God, calling with a loud voice to him. He's calling to the son of man who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. And so what what we see here now, this this reaping, we're going to see two different reapings right here. We're going to see here the son of man puts his sickle in and reaps. And then in uh, verses uh, verses uh, 17 excuse me, 17 through 20, we're going to see another angel, not this angel that just called for reaping, but another angel with his sickle, put his sickle in and reap. And so what we're seeing is two different reapings here. And, 
you can either take this one of two ways, and pe- there are people who take it, you know, both sides. Uh, there are some who say that this is the same reaping; it's a reaping of judgment, and it's just all done away with. Uh, or there are, are people who take it to mean this first reaping of the Son of Man is the calling of His elect in by the gospel, and the second reaping is the the uh, the uh, gathering of those for judgment. Now, understand this is not we're not talking about we're not talking about the rapture yet, and we're not talking about the removal of people from earth yet. We're talking about the the in gathering, the separating of the sheep and the goats. Let's just read through it, and we'll see we'll see if I can uh, make a case for uh, we saw the son of man is uh, uh, the center of this vision both beasts are raging uh, in chapter 13 they're trying to do their worst against God's people but the son of man is enthroned in the clouds just as Daniel 7 says he, the call is given the angel comes forth out of the temple uh, the angel gives the, demi- di- uh, the divine command from the throne room to reap uh, because the hour has come uh, this reaping is I'm going to make the case that it's the calling of the elect through the gospel the gospel has come forth the angel has brought the angel has uh, already uh, came forth proclaiming the uh, the eternal gospel the gospel has gone forth and so this this reaping this uh, uh harvesting you know reaping is kind of a when i say the word reaping i think of like the grim reaper or something like that but what he's talking about is the harvest the harvesting the harvesting of his people the harvesting of the fruit that has been that has been growing uh, I, I just got to believe that we got to distinguish this harvest this reaping from the one mentioned next john i mean he's john is not simply repeating himself saying hey and another angel came after him and he reaped and the same thing happened uh the angel that appears after this son of man with a sickle reaps uh we're told for certain that the angel that appears after this reaps the grapes into the wine press of god's wrath we'll see that when we get to it but i want to show it to you right here to distinguish between the reaping the harvesting that the angel does in a moment in the last few verses of this chapter and the harvesting that the son of man is doing here uh the language of harvesting, reaping here, it lines up closest to Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 29. It says, in that text it says, and he says, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps, rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And if you remember, in the Gospels, Jesus also commanded the believers to pray. What did he command them to pray? That the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers. Why? It says because the fields are white for harvest. And so you were talking about a harvest. And it also lines up with the fact that the 144,000 mentioned earlier in this chapter are called what? They're called the first fruits. They're called the first fruits. And so we see the first fruits come in in the 144,000, the picture of those standing with Mount Zion. And now we see the harvest come the reaping of those uh the final harvest and you see it in john chapter 4 verses 35 through 38 it says jesus said do you not say there are yet four months then comes the harvest look i tell you lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest already now listen he's talking about those who preach the gospel already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together for here the saying holds true one sows and another 
the reaps. I sent you, Jesus tells them, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So what I see here is the son of man comes with his sickle and he's reaping the harvest. Uh, reaping is a, is a, it's a, it's a strange word. It makes it's just a violent sounding word. Uh, he is harvesting the grain. He is harvesting the harvest. He's he's the gospel goes forth and God is gathering his people. He's gathering his people from out of uh, the nations. He's gathering his people from out of the uh, of the land. He's gathering his people together that are ripe for the harvest. And this this uh, son of man, uh, this harvest I see as the gathering of uh, the elect by the preaching of the gospel Jesus told his his disciples specifically I'm calling you to go and reap and the harvest is white but you also see this next angel in verse 17 uh, prepare for what seems like another harvest then another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle and another angel this is another one this is the seventh angel came out from the altar remember the altar where the souls are of the are under crying for justice uh, the altar who and this is the angel who has authority over the fire the one that threw the fire down onto the land and he called out with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle he says put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. Now look what this angel does with his harvest. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth, I would say land, of the land, and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And so there can be no doubt that this harvest is one of wrath. It is the separating of the sheep and and the goats. It is one that is placed it is all pictured as a harvest. We have the harvest of the wheat, we have the harvest of the tares. They're all pulled up together and what we see is there are men are being separated out now. We have those that have the name of the lamb upon them, we have those that have the name of the beast upon them and whatever Whatever destiny they have chosen, for lack of a better way to put it, uh, now they are now they are reaping the result of that of that decision. Now they're reaping the result of that choice. The battle lines have been drawn. Those that are with the Son of Man, those who are with the Lamb, are being separated out for Him. Those who are uh, have chosen to follow the the beast, whether it be the the pagan system or whether it be the religious uh, Judaic system. Of the second beast, they are uh, harvested from the land and they're thrown into the wine press of the wrath of God. Now, you may say, why are you why are you so adamant that this means uh, means land here? And we're talking about uh, the reaping of those who have refused the Messiah. And verse 20 tells us, and the wine press was trodden outside the city. Now that's what we're talking about. This Babylon the Great is is this city where the wine press, the wine press of God's wrath is trodden. God's wrath is taking place outside the city. Remember where Jesus was crucified. It's made a, a huge point in Hebrews to tell us that Jesus was crucified outside the camp, outside the city. It says, and the blood flows. Here's, here's a very famous verse. The blood flow, flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. 
Now, in the English Standard Version, 1600 Stadia, is that, that's what it needs to be. Some English translations try to smooth it out, try to help the reader along by saying it's you know 200 miles or something like that. Uh, I think 600 Stadia is... Uh, better uh and the reason why is because we have uh, we have historical documents that show us uh that the uh the uh the 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 length and breadth of the the land of Palestine the land of Israel the the promised land from from Tyre down to the borders of Egypt where the land was supposed to be was like 1664 stadia and so you're talking about you're talking about blood flowing now think about this you're talking about blood flowing as high as a horse's bridle, which I mean, I don't know how big a horse is. Probably what a bridle be what four or five foot, maybe, maybe, uh, for two hundred miles. I mean, I don't know how many gallons of blood that is, but that's a lot of blood. And so it's pretty obvious that you know this is not to be taken as a literal reality because where is this blood coming from? It's coming from the wine press of God's wrath. We're given the picture of a harvest here, and this harvest is said to you know they're being trodden down. It's like they're throwing grapes into the wine press, and what do they do? They stomp the grapes and mash the grapes, and the juice comes out of the grapes, and then they they do their thing with fermentation and all that to make it make it wine and all that, but. What he's talking about is the the people who have rece- are receiving the wrath of God are tossed into the wine press of God's wrath, and they are stomped out. They are uh, receiving the wrath of God, and the effect of that, the result of that, is going to be so massive that it's described as instead of grape juice flowing out, it's is described as their blood flowing out uh, up to the horse's bridle uh, for the entire length. And it just, I mean, maybe it's just a really, really neat coincidence. But for the entire length of the Holy Land, the entire length of the promised land, uh, the angels harvest for God's wrath in in verse 19. If we read read that again, it says the angel swung his sickle across the earth, gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it in the great winepress of the wrath of God. Uh, This image is taken from Joel chapter three, verse 13. It says, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in tread for the wine press is full the vats overflow for their evil is great and you see the same thing in isaiah chapter 63 verses 2 through 6 i'm gonna read this whole uh, section to you because it is so many parallels to what we're reading here it says why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads the wine press and he says this is his answer i have trodden the wine press alone and from the people's uh, the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. <clears throat> Their lifeblood spatters on my garments and stains all my apparel. Uh, for the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption hath come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their life lifeblood on the earth and so what you see here is you see the 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 fulfillment of the promises of god you see uh the the beginning of chapter 14 those who stand with the lamb as opposed to the beast and all that he stands for and all that the second beast stands for and then you see the judgment start to come you see uh the angels start flying saying whoa babylon has fallen come out of her my people uh you see 
You've seen the 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 wine press of of the harvest. You've seen the harvest, the the uh, the pulling up of the wheat and the tares, the 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 gathering of the elect to one side for the lamb, and the gathering of those who have chosen to take the mark and worship the beast on the other side, and the the. Uh, the culmination of this wrath is uh, is shown in the fact that it's culminated in the wine press of God, which uh, results in the um, uh, I was going to say the liquefaction of His enemies. You know, it's instead of instead of grape juice, it's blood, and it's a lot of blood. In fact, He gives the exact measurements not not exact, but the approximate measurements of. The Holy Land, the Promised Land, from Tyre to Egypt, 1664 stadia. Uh, that was given by an ancient historian. And so we see that it's no mistake. It's no mistake that, uh, that it is specified in these terms. And so what we see here is we see the effect of the gospel going forth in both judgment and in salvation. Now, <clears throat> there may be some things that you're, uh, as we've gone through chapter 14, you say, ah, you know, I don't know. I'm not not sold on the whole deal. Um, regardless, uh, surely you can see that the application of this for our life today in 2016 remains the same. Uh, the application, whether you take this as, you know, whether if you, you know, think in my exact interpretation is, <clears throat> is, um, uh, you know, not correct in every way, shape or form. You can see that the application of this is still exactly the same. We're called to follow the lamb. We're called not to compromise. We're called not to give in, not an inch. We don't serve other gods, even if it's expedient, even if it seems right. We don't serve religion that tries to come to God without the sacrifice of Christ. We don't serve the things that look like lambs, but actually speak like dragons. Even if all of society tells us it's okay even if all of religion tells us it's okay, we do not we do not bow down to any other than Christ in any way, shape, or form. Not in the way that we live, not in the way that we act, not in the way that we think, not in the way that we do uh, anything. We do it all in the name of the Lord. And when something or someone comes and that is threatened and they say, you know what, it's not going to hurt. Just go ahead and do this. It's going to be better for everything. We stand fast, even if it means death. Those first century Christians did. Those first century Jewish Christians who stood in the midst of the of the city as it was crumbling down around them and as, as they fled to Pella and then the Christians that uh, suffered under Nero uh, from, from Jewish to pagan to Gentile, uh, no matter who they were, you can read the story of men who said, I will not bow down. I will not give in, not even an inch. And they died to pay for that. 